review. It's first and inches. Our football team was like the kid that plays second French horn in the school band. We got to play better. That's why I don't read the newspaper. Because it's garbage. He had shoulder surgery on his elbow. Shoulder, shoulder, shoulder surgery on his elbow. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. Well, first of all, what kind of mythical powers does a Sun Devil have? We got to consider that. The kids are playing their tail off, and the coaches are screwing it up. If worms had machine guns, then birds wouldn't be scared of them. Downfield wide opens Gallon. They left him alone. Yeah, I don't know if anybody saw me trip on the way in. Anybody see that? <laughs> A lesser athlete would have gone down. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to First and Inches. I'm Kevin Wise. This is Patrick Smith. We are brought to you by Milwaukee Tool. Nothing but heavy duty. And we apologize for our recent absence after a great conference championship weekend. You know, we weren't on the airwaves, but we were certainly on the couches with the eyes glued on the screens, taking in just about all of it. I had a blast. Great games. Michigan, Big Ten champs again. Feels pretty good, Kev. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, so in, in this week's episode, we're kind of in this this weird um, early signing period, get ready for the bowl games, dead kind of period in college football. This week, we'll talk a little bit about basically a regular season wrap up, what we think about the end of the college football playoff rankings um, and the, the imminent playoff. We'll discuss some of the conference championship games. We will talk a little bit about the the Heisman, some of the coaching hires, and just touch on the transfer portal. And you can expect at some point next week, we'll come back on and we'll give you all the the bowl previews that I know you're probably looking forward to. Yeah, well, let's get right into it. Where do you want to start, Kev? Yeah, so I think we can probably do the most relevant thing to the sport, and that is the cultural playoff rankings themselves. Although we did not record an episode, um, college football is part of our everyday lives here for Patrick and myself, and we did have a little, um, call it friendly debate on what we thought the committee, number one, would, and then number two, should do with these playoff rankings. And... While the rankings during the season are obviously a great source of debate, oftentimes, as we saw this year, the games usually work themselves out into a pretty reasonable way. And I think we can both agree that the committee probably got it right. Yeah, I mean, this could have been way more messy had teams like Tennessee not lost to South Carolina, Clemson not lost one leading up to the championship weekend. Also, had, to South Carolina had USC not dropped their conference championship game. Um, there, it, it could have been a lot messier than it ended up. But you're right; things kind of just worked themselves out that last weekend. And I think that I don't know. I don't think there was much disagreement whatsoever 
on the top four teams. I mean, you know, you got some murmurs here and there for Alabama, but I don't want to hear it like that was established with the rankings the week before. Um, and the resumes just didn't stack up this year. So, yeah, I think they got it right. I think the four teams they got were right. Um, and we talked a lot about order, and I think they got the order right, too, this time. Um, I think TCU deserved to be the three spot over Ohio State. Um, and like you said, I think it kind of worked itself out. They got to avoid the rematch at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, kind of just worked itself out. I was pretty happy with the way it played out. Obviously played out in a nice way for Michigan. Um, but in general, I do think it was the right four teams in the right order. Yeah, I agree. I think at the top, there was a little discussion about Michigan versus Georgia in terms of that number one spot. I am completely okay with Michigan being second and Georgia being the proverbial favorite here. Um, not only are they the defending champions, which I think does matter. Their players, a lot of those players in the roster have been there and they've won one. Michigan obviously has not done that, looking for their first win actually in the college football playoff period. But I also think that Michigan did have a, a few more close calls during the season, even late in the season, obviously with the Illinois game. There were some other things surrounding that, but I, I firmly believe that uh, Georgia deserved that number one spot. I think Michigan deserved number two. Uh, I am in favor of not you know, penalizing TCU for playing in a game when Ohio State didn't. So I think that lined up uh, three and four pretty nicely. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with your thought process there on the, you know, TCU played an extra game that Ohio State didn't get the opportunity to play in. Um, but also, you know, Michigan and Georgia, I think we're in the right order here, but Michigan definitely got a little bit of benefit here by getting the better matchup, I think, out of the two. I think most people would agree they'd rather play TCU in that first match, and I don't mean that as a slight to TCU. It would be really hard for Michigan to beat Ohio State twice in such a short span, and I think Georgia would just rather play TCU from a talent standpoint. Yeah, I would in general agree with that. I would hope as a Michigan fan that Harbaugh has – instilled in these players uh, an important part of competition is that not to look past your next opponent. TCU is obviously here for a reason. Um, Max Duggan is a good quarterback and they have some other weapons there as well. Um, they're obviously a formidable opponent and um, I think that all four teams are deserving, but I would tend to agree that most people probably think, especially with the high powered offense that Ohio State has, that they're a little bit scarier than TCU. Yeah, and I don't think Michigan's going to be looking past TCU in this matchup. I mean, this is the same set of guys, uh, the same quarterback, the same running back that stood there on the field watching the Georgia celebrations after they lost in their semifinal last time around. So uh, I would hope and I would certainly think that no one's looking past a first-round college football playoff matchup and they're just hungry for a win. Yep, and I think that's been the team's mentality all season. Um, I'm not saying that I suspect that. I just wouldn't want that to happen. Um, but, you know, I don't know what the line's down to now, but Michigan open up, I think, is nine-point favorites, which is a pretty substantial spread in a playoff game against a pretty good team. Um, just real quick, we, we can kind of touch on the rest of the rankings here. So outside of that top four, Alabama did come in at number five, followed by Tennessee at number six. We can stop here just for a second. I know it's, it is basically inconsequential. However, there was a little bit of discussion amongst SEC fans, especially that 
where did Alabama and Tennessee fall? I actually personally have no issue with Alabama being ahead of Tennessee. There, there was a head-to-head. However, that head-to-head was played um, at Tennessee, which obviously gives them an advantage. And I don't think that a head-to-head should overrule everything. And you, you got blown out big time. It's kind of like the, the LSU factor that I mentioned before. These big blowout losses look, uh, look pretty bad, and they're much worse than either of Alabama's losses. Yeah, I think head-to-head is super important, but it it can't be the only factor. And when you look at Alabama's resume, the two very close losses to two very good teams um, and Tennessee's resume just doesn't stack up with that big loss. So I'm okay with this order here, too. Moving past them, we have Clemson come in at number seven. This is actually kind of centered around a a debate Patrick and I were having Depending on what the committee wanted to do here, I thought that the committee in general likes to use several tenants to move teams up and down, such as head-to-head. Another one can be conference champion. So I was just curious to see what was going to happen with Clemson. I thought that they might even bump Clemson up into a five or six spot just because they, they were going to say that Alabama didn't win a conference, Tennessee didn't win a conference, they all have two losses, Clemson did win a conference. But... Ultimately, I think the committee did a pretty good job here. I think that's right about where Clemson probably should lie. I think that um, staying with that idea, that's probably how Utah and Kansas State came in at eight and nine, even though they do have three losses there. They won their conference. They did put Utah ahead of Southern Cal, who ended at 10 with two losses. And then kind of the the teams that are just on the outside looking in, rounding out the um, top 12, there are Penn State and Washington. And I thought overall the committee did a pretty good job. Yeah, I think the biggest theme you see from the committee here is just me being absolutely locked in on knowing exactly what was going to happen. Uh, I think going into the final selections here, Kev had you had Clemson five, yep, and Ohio State three, and those were the big ones we talked about. Um, yep. And I had the top seven just absolutely nailed in order. Yeah. And um, I think that part of that also speaks to that um, I probably have a lack of faith in the committee overall. Uh, They have made some selections this year, which are really head scratchers to me. But I think they could make the argument, which is true, that the only rankings that really matter are the last ones. And they got the last ones right. Um, Yeah, boy, did they have an easy job, though, this year. I would have loved to see how they their alien brains moshed and poshed through a messy top seven, but we didn't get that this year. And it seems like I can't give you a scenario off the top of my head from prior seasons, but it seems like that's generally how it goes is these things do generally work themselves out. And at most one team is on the outside looking in and I would not even consider this a season like that. I don't think Bama has uh, earned that. Yeah, I think a couple nice things to end with touching on these rankings is that um, we just recently got the announcement that expansion is on the way. 2024 to 25 season is now the start of the 12-team playoff. Um, Same year uh, from a Big Ten standpoint that UCLA and USC will be joining the Big Ten. Um, And I think one of my favorite parts about that is we do have some dates. The first round, which will be the home site um, on the site of the the home campus of the hosting team, 
Um, they'll play those games right before the Christmas break, uh, you know, ending in the week of the 21st. So we talked about this earlier on the pod this season. Uh, real cold Midwest games for some SEC teams coming your way in just under two years, baby. Yeah, I'm, I'm soaked to see uh, Nick Saban up, hopefully, at the big house sometime. I think that'll be great. Uh, and it'll be weird to see, you know, USC playing that season in the Big Ten. So a lot of new things on the way for college football. Um, one thing that I think is funny to mention just with the, the playoffs briefly here is I think a lot of people wanted a 12-team playoff because we had seen a lot of familiar faces in the playoff for the last several years. You know, I, I think we've all seen the statistic that this is the first season Clemson or Alabama will not be in the playoff. And how funny it is now that they announced that we were expanding to 12 teams, we get what we asked for with some new blood and some old blood. You know, I mean, this is TCU is the only team with the, its first go, but this is Michigan, only Michigan's second. Um, but if we had an expanded 12-team playoff, Bama and Clemson would have gotten in again. So it's just kind of funny. The things ebb and flow, and sometimes right when you call for change is the time that change was um, kind of phasing in anyway. Yeah, I mean, this year's change was kind of a consequence of just a lack of quality teams at the end of the season with actually good resumes. Uh, also, the first year where you see two non-conference champions in the field of four in the college football playoff, um, I think, like you said, uh, like we talked about, just not a lot of good teams beyond those top four this year. Yeah, agreed. I think these are these were the clear, most deserving um, top four teams. Okay. Well, I don't think we have to really dive into anything. There's nothing too interesting with the rest of the rankings here. Um, now, I think we can uh, get into a little bit talking about the results of the conference championships and how we came to, you know, these, these final four. Um, the first domino to fall on that Friday night was Utah 47, USC 23. Pat, what were your overall thoughts when you were watching this one? Um, so honestly, wasn't totally surprised. Kind of saw this coming a little bit. I don't know. When I went into this weekend, it just felt like TCU or USC or some combination of the two could lose. I had also thought kind of throughout the last couple of the weeks of the season, and I know we talked about this previously was that it, it just felt like those teams on the radar that had to lose to allow the loser of the game, Michigan or Ohio State, to still make the field after a loss. It just felt like those teams were vulnerable. Those teams were TCU. Those teams were USC. Um, I think Clemson and LSU were peripherally on the radar. We talked about that. We talked about kind of all those teams. I think I had talked about how I thought Michigan or Ohio State would still get in with a loss. Um, and it's because I saw matchups like this playing out throughout the rest of the season. And USC, yes, a favorite in this game, a favorite to win most of their games down the stretch, um, but had been vulnerable throughout the regular season, had shown spurts where their defense was not as good. Their defense was porous and their offense couldn't keep up with what their defense was allowing um, and came into this game. Um, and Utah kind of just got their way for a while. Um, Caleb Williams looked 
hobbled, decent, not his best self. Um, certainly had a performance that could lose one the Heisman in a year where another candidate had performed up to their standard down the stretch this year kind of, and we'll touch on the Heisman more, but kind of saw the field all perform poorly or get injured down the stretch. Um, so, you know, wasn't all that surprised. My biggest takeaway that was, you know, Caleb seemed a little hobbled, didn't seem himself. Um, and Utah got just everything they wanted out of this game. They could move the ball on the ground. They threw the ball when they needed to. Um, and they just kind of took control of the game. And, and it wasn't all that surprising to me. I kind of saw some vulnerability like this coming out of USC. And that kind of leads into my point, which is Lincoln Riley must have one of the best PR firms in the country because I have to sit here and wonder as I'm squinting across at my friend's engagement party trying to catch the score of the USC Utah game. If I squint hard enough, I can see it on the chest of the Trojans that says Sooners. And there's a Heisman winning quarterback playing for Lincoln Riley, a team that's poised to go to the college football playoff, an explosive offense with weapons on the outside, a porous defense, and he comes up short again. When are we going to start the narrative that Lincoln Riley can't win the big one? I think it's time. I think we're there. You know, one of the benefits that he had at Oklahoma was playing at a power school in a big-time conference when your rival's down. Texas hasn't been good in years. USC, right now. Notre Dame, a little bit down this year. Not terrible. Not terrible. But not a, a little ten, down. But not a 10-2, and two, not 11-1 Notre Dame team. Neither was UCLA. We, you know, they had a good year, but they, you know, they weren't that good. When are we going to start talking about that with Lincoln Riley? It's, it seems as though first overall picks back to back to back. When is he ever going to break through? And I mean, I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think he might not. This might 11 and one, 10 and two getting blown out in the first round of the college football playoff. Maybe that's his ceiling. Might be. And I mean, USC had everything to play for in this game. Uh, potentially had, you know, probably would have had the number three spot um, in a matchup with Michigan, avoiding Georgia in the first round. They come away with a win in this game. Just couldn't perform on the biggest stage um, and showed some of their vulnerabilities that they had shown throughout the season. And just a massive win for Utah. Um, dominating performance, getting a huge Pac-12 championship for them. Um, just very big, very impressive coaching job. Outcoached the hell out of Lincoln Riley um, and looked really good doing it. Agree with all of that. Agree with all of that. Next domino again to fall with almost ensuing complete chaos. Big 12 championship, Kansas State. 31 TCU 28 with an absolutely phenomenal finish. If you didn't watch TCU down the fighting Max Duggins driving, he literally put the team on his back rushing the entire way down the field. After not using his legs much at all the rest of the game prior. Converting con- converting on the two-point conversion 
and sending it to overtime. Once we get to overtime, a controversial call on a third and fourth and goal for TCU running Kendra Miller, which on the third and goal looked to me like the ball had crossed the plane, but we didn't get a lot of coverage on that from the major sports networks. I thought that was very interesting. We didn't get a ton. We got some, but it definitely didn't go to review. Um, or did that? I don't think that one went to review, correct? I don't believe it did. Um, on the sideline angle that I did see on Twitter, it did look like maybe his knee was down or his uh, lower leg was down with the ball tip just, you know, it, it's the closest of margins, maybe just a hair short, but very, very close. We're talking about hairs either way here. Very easily could have been called a touchdown on the field, regardless of what it was when it was reviewed, it probably was going to stand. Um, this was a very, very close call. There have been less close calls in much smaller moments that have gotten a lot more news, I thought. I just thought it was very interesting. I thought this play would have been the whole talk of the game and kind of the talk of college football on, on a big day, which, like I said, caused chaos to ensue. But it really wasn't. I just found that interesting. I'm not sure where that came from. And then that set up a big play on fourth down, where obviously they didn't convert in overtime. Um, Got and stuffed again. Weren't able to put points on the board. Yep, and then a pretty easy field goal conversion there, and Kansas State wins, who who I think we all agree is a, a pretty good team. Yeah, no, I, I think I went into this game thinking either team could win. They had played a very close game earlier in the regular season that TCU was lucky to escape with. Um, there was honestly not very many results in this game that I thought would move the me- uh, move the needle for me on TCU. And also, I don't think there was a lot of results in this game that would move the needle nationally. Um, and I think this is just a good moment to say, like, th- these final four teams after USC lost were set, um, regardless of outcomes throughout the rest of those games. Michigan was going to be number two, regardless of whether they beat Purdue or not. Um, TCU is going to remain number three, regardless of whether they lost to Kansas State or not. These were kind of set outcomes um, based on the way the rest of the field played out. Um, But yeah, I I thought I saw a close win for TCU here, a close loss. Um, I think the only result that would have moved the needle, like I was mentioning, was a TCU blowout where they looked really good and efficient. Um, But, you know, that hasn't been what we've seen out of TCU this year. Um, They kind of are what they are, which is a really good football team, um, but not a team that really blows people out um, and not a a team that set, you know, a team that's vulnerable to games like this where they are in close games and can't get across the finish line because they've escaped with so many of those this year. They're bound to lose some every once in a while. Completely agree. Well, we can, we can just hit on some more of these that were more of expected outcomes here. Georgia 50, LSU 30. I I would summarize this game by saying, um, Score is way closer than what, what it actually was. If you weren't able to catch the game, it was basically some some fluky touchdowns for Georgia in the first quarter. But at the end of the first half, Georgia 35, LSU 7, basically just on cruise control. Um, in the second half, a bright spot for uh, LSU, however, 
Garrett Nussmeyer comes in the game. Completely different style than uh, Jaden Daniels, who is obviously more of a dual threat type guy. But Nussmeyer throwing beautiful balls down the field. Uh, Something definitely to look forward to if you're an LSU fan. I think objectively a good season for Brian Kelly in his first season. I think their over under win total was at, you know, six or seven. So um, an appearance in the SEC championship game first season is encouraging. However, I don't think they were ever close to that fifth uh, place ranking that they achieved a couple weeks ago. And I think we all knew that um, and this game wasn't close. Yeah. Biggest takeaway from this one was Georgia looks primed for that college football playoff run. They look ready to go. They look good on both sides of the ball. They look uh, explosive when they need to be and efficient when they want to be. Um, and they look really good. And they had some wide receivers out who will be likely back, including Mitchell for um, the college football playoff. And that that's a big deal as they can use as many playmakers on the outside um, as they can. Moving to the Big Ten, our Michigan Wolverines, 43, Purdue, 22. Um, I think this game went similar to many Michigan games this year. Uh, number one, Purdue is a, a pretty good football team. Obviously, we have the dichotomy of the Big Ten East and the Big Ten West, where the West produces um, just not the top-end teams of Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State like the East does. Uh, continues to be a problem for the Big Ten Conference and leading to these kind of lopsided title games. But Purdue played pretty well, had some quick throws. Aiden O'Connell was connecting with Charlie Jones, um, and they, they look great. They're moving the ball, unable to kind of cash some of those in. And then again, in the second half, Michigan's running attack kind of took over. the first One of the first plays of the second half actually is when Donovan Edwards broke off that long run and you just kind of felt like it was the classic mission game where, where they were wearing on you again. Yeah, I think the game started out here with Purdue looking pretty decent. Um, Purdue able to get into dangerous areas of the field, got to the red zone a lot. Michigan's defense did what they had to do. They didn't look phenomenal throughout. I thought Purdue was able to move the ball pretty well. Um, but huge performance in, uh, for the Michigan defense in the red zone in this game. They just buckled down when they need to. Uh, They forced a ton of field goals in this game, gave Michigan's offense an opportunity to build a lead through their efficiency by limiting Purdue's, and I thought that was huge. Um, Additionally, like you mentioned, just a massive shift in the power um, or a massive like tilt in the power of the Big Ten Conference. The East has now won 10 straight against the West, it's just routine at this point that the Big Ten East champion is probably going to the college football playoff because they don't have to worry about a loss in the college football or in the conference championships. Um, so I'm very, very interested, big, big picture, in how the Big Ten will reshape things once UCLA and USC come. I'd love to see a future where they do four four-team pods um, and each year you play two teams of the other pods. That way you maintain a few of your traditional rivalries. You play those teams each year, and then you rotate through each of the other three pods. I think that would be a really nice way to do it and a really nice way to limit some of UCLA and USC's travel. Um, but I, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting because right now the Big Ten West does not have a chance at competing with the Big Ten East. Yeah, and there have been some obvious, you know, coaching changes that have been made there. 
Uh, I think that the team, I would say, as an avid watcher of Big Ten football over the last 20 years, um, the West's best chance is probably a good Wisconsin team, usually. And maybe Luke Fickle can bring them back to do that. Um, but it's been a while since you've really had one of those ground and pound Wisconsin teams with um, a first round tailback that um, puts puts really any fear in you. There's also Matt Rule going to Nebraska. Um, I think there's just so much kind of volatility there that you, who knows that could be a bang, it could be a bust. Um, and then there's obviously the addition, like you said, of USC and UCLA to hopefully balance this out in some way. But again, this is an expected result. And um, now I think that, you know, you are looking at always the winner of the Big Ten East will be going to the college football playoff and probably second place, whether that is Michigan, Ohio State, or even Penn State, who their roster is, is shaping up well with, you know, Abdul Carter as a nice freshman on the defensive side. And, you know, maybe Drew Aller can take a step forward here next season. Yeah, so I think the last game to talk about in conference championship week was Clemson-UNC. Clemson blew North Carolina out 39-10. to Kev, did you have any takeaways from this game? I didn't catch too much of this one. I didn't either. Um, the little bit I, I did see, I think there is just a roster talent gap between Clemson and UNC that is pretty obvious. Um, Drake May can only fill so many of those voids on offense. Um, Josh Downs is obviously an NFL caliber wide receiver as well. But my, my bigger takeaway is where the two programs are going. Um, DJ Uyungale is uh, hitting the transfer portal um, in a possible package deal with his brother. We'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, and then while UNC, uh, Drake May has come out after all these rumors that he may hit the transfer portal and says that he's staying. If you don't know, his his brother was also a North Carolina athlete there, kind of a North Carolina legacy Tar Heel family. So that doesn't surprise me too much. But Josh Downs, kind of their other big uh, pro player on um, offense is leaving. And there has been basically a mass exodus on defense, including you know, Keyshawn Silver, who was a former five-star defensive lineman, was supposed to be a guy that they were looking um, looking towards the next couple of years here to be a stud. He's on his way out. He'll be a target for some teams. And then basically every defensive back almost on the roster, I think it's up to, you know, five or six DBs now have left. So a lot of turmoil um, in North Carolina, as well as, you know, uh, Phil Longo, who is their offensive coordinator, um, moving on to the Wisconsin coaching staff. So We'll see what happens with North Carolina next year, but um, I think really that that loss to uh, Navy this year probably hurt um, when when you know they they look at it now and Drake May was so good. This was probably the year where they had the chance. Maybe they could have won the ACC. Yeah, and I think on the other side of the coin uh, for Clemson moving on after DJ. Uh, Cade Klubnick looked really good in that conference championship game. Um, in his minutes, he looked really nice. He definitely carried them in their win there. Um, so we'll be interesting to see him moving forward. Um, and yeah, um, I think that kind of wraps up the championship weekend. Um, we already kind of touched on a lot of the coaching hires that have come out. There's obviously one big one we didn't talk about yet. Um, and that's Deion Sanders to Colorado prime time going to Boulder. Um, will be very, very interesting to see what he can do in a power five school. 
uh, will be a lot of media and a lot of focus, and, and I'm pretty excited about it. I think it could be pretty, pretty fun. Yeah, so that was kind of then the news that over the last week shocked the college football world was Deion Sanders going to Colorado and what everyone thinks. So I think there's a couple different elements to this. First, we can talk about the, the, the fit itself and what's been going on with Deion Sanders and what's been going on with Colorado. So obviously Deion Sanders was a stud corner and return specialist for uh, Florida State while he was in college and then for uh, the 49ers and the Falcons um, in the NFL primetime, as many of you know him. Uh, the last two seasons, he's been the head football coach at Jackson State in Jackson, Mississippi, um, which is not a FBS uh, Division One school. They're in their own division uh, national championship, and I believe he's only lost two games in that span. So he has had some success, made some waves last year when he was able to get the number one overall player in the class, Travis Hunter, to commit and flip from Florida State, his alma mater, on National Signing Day. That was a pretty big deal. He's followed that up with some other top 50, top 100 players. Um, a fun stat that I've seen thrown around a couple times is that um, Jackson State, over the last two cycles, has seven four- or five-star players on their roster, and Colorado has zero. So, and Jackson um, State was a really good football team this year. I mean, they looked really good on the field, too. So um, he has he has some stuff going on there, but there's obviously a difference. Uh, let's move on to the other side of this coin. Uh, what's been going on with Colorado football? Um, over the last 10 seasons, I believe they had one 10-win year. Besides that, I don't know if they've had any winning seasons. And in this last season, they went 1-11 and were arguably the worst team um, in the FBS. Um, I think they've gone through three coaches in four years, and there has been a lot of turnover and not a lot of stability within the football program. So with that, I'll, I'll give you kind of my thoughts on this. If I had to give this a grade, I would give this an A+, and here's why. If you're Deion Sanders... You have had some success at Jackson State. However, you haven't proven anything at the major Power 5 FBS level yet. And what a great place to start, somewhere where you can go nowhere but up. If he comes in next year and wins six games, that's a five-game improvement of what they were the last year. That is objectively a success. He has elevated that program. If he is able to win just two or three Pac-12 games, if he can get a couple of those bottom dwellers in, in the Pac-12, that, that elevates the football program. And so that's good That's good for him. That's also good for Colorado. Colorado has nowhere to go but up. They need a splashy hire. They need kids to find a way to get here and come here. There are no expectations at Colorado of winning a national championship or even right now of winning a Pac-12 championship. He would be a you know, legend of Colorado for winning a couple eight and nine win seasons, which I think over the course of the talent that he can accrue there is very possible. So I think it's a good match for both, but nothing's guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think it's like an A++. Um, he's going to be a recruiting menace. Uh, Colorado is going to get a lot of great, talented high school players. Um, he's going to have the ability to put good teams on the field in a conference that does not have a ton of stiff competition um, and has a real chance to succeed on a national level now 
I think it's the perfect spot. You know, he didn't have enough on his resume to jump to like a career ending type of college football job, but he certainly has the ability to prove that at Colorado and take a big jump from there. I think it's a great fit. Um, I think people, you know, Colorado kind of sells itself and the combination of Dion and Colorado together will be a really nice recruiting pitch. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of talent going in there. It's going to be a bit of a media circus. It could be a lot of fun. Um, so I'm excited about it. I think it really is a good situation for both schools or both, both parties. And I think this brings us to the point about how he's going to plan for success at Colorado. And we'll spend a little bit of time talking about this because this is kind of the, the hot thing right now in college football is Dean Sanders in Colorado and the transfer portal. So if you missed it, um, Dion came in last week over the last 10 days and did a normal press conference where he introduces himself to the media, explains his plan. I thought it looked pretty good, actually. It was very well thought out, professional. Uh, and then there's a soundbite of him talking to the players, and he sits down with a lot of the Colorado players who are on scholarship right now. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically says, uh, I am on my way. We're not going to be a 1-11 team anymore. Some of you may not have spots on scholarship here. You can go into the portal if you want. But here are all the things we're going to do. And he sits down and he says, and we're going to be disciplined. And we're going to play fast. And we're going to play hard. And we're going to have character. Um, and I have seen a number of people say, you, you know, you can't talk to these college quote-unquote kids that way, which I think is a very interesting take because I think that the move from Lincoln Riley to Southern California last year and taking all those players with them in the NIL deals and the media coverage and Deion Sanders is somewhat the way of the future. And I think the only people we have to blame if we don't like this are ourselves. We wanted players to have freedom of movement between schools. We wanted them to be able to benefit from their name, image, and likeness. Both concepts in a vacuum, which I agree with. I think that makes a lot of sense. But what we have created is a mini professional football league. And these aren't kids. They're adults. If they make a decision like we've seen in... Um, you know, every, every, you know, college football year that involves the law, they will be tried as adults. And just like any adult at work, if you come in and you're not doing your job and you're not playing well enough, new management's hired, you might be on the chopping block. So I, whether it's right or wrong is up for debate and whether you want to see this continue I think is a valid question. I expect it will continue. Yeah. And I mean, Deion Sanders goal is going to be to turn over that roster and turn them into a winning football team in a very short period of time. That is not going to be accomplished by putting the same exact players on the field with a new head coach. If that is the route that a school wants to go, where you know they want to build talent through recruiting then you got to give a coach like four to five years but that's not what they expect out of Dion, and i don't think that's what Dion's planning to do like he said to the players he's bringing his own luggage and it's louie like he's bringing um his quarterback he's bringing talented players on the defensive end 
they're going to be a lot of changes in the roster from the starting lineup all the way down to the people at the very bottom of the roster. Some of those people are going to transfer transfer out. And I, you know, I think that being open about the situation where like, Hey, now's your chance transfer out if you want, but things are going to be a little different. That's super reasonable. Um, you know, I think it's going to rub some people the wrong way. I think there's surely more gentle ways you could have put it and, you know, not rubbed people as, as, you know, not gotten people so upraged and made people so uncomfortable with it. But look, man, it's prime time. It's Deion Sanders. It's not going to always be like the most PR way. So I think, uh, I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, I, I think it will too. And we've already seen a couple players, a notable um, Dylan Edwards is a, was a running back committed to Notre Dame, no less. He has already flipped over to Colorado. Winston Watkins is a five-star wide receiver, one of the best players in the entire country, I believe in the class of 2024, plays at IMG Academy, has offers everywhere. He, is, he committed that day to Colorado. These are, just to put into perspective, if you don't follow this kind of stuff a lot, um, you know, Winston Watkins being, I think he's, you know, like a top 15 overall, that's someone that is a jewel for Alabama type of player, at least in a recruiting ranking. That doesn't mean they pan out, but these, these are the kinds of guys that, that Deion Sanders will attract players that would never consider coming to Colorado. So, um, what the, um, you know, season will look like in terms of success in the football football field we will see but one of the reasons i think it's such a great fit is that they, they had nowhere to go but up they open the season against tcu in nebraska so those yeah, will be, those will be some games. very very fun football games really excited to see those i hope they um i think tcu might be first i've heard which i would love that whichever of those two games falls on that Labor Day weekend, they flex that game into the Sunday night, which was the one that LSU played FSU this year. So Brian Kelly's first game, that was that was awesome. You know, uh, I hope they do that. That'd be amazing. And then, you know, just another great thing with this Colorado situation as as he comes in there is TCU coming off the playoff run. Uh, Nebraska coming off a new hire, just going to be like some real showtime matchups. Yep. Com- completely agree. So, you know, they're going to Colorado football will have ratings on TV that has not seen before in a long time for those first two games. Uh, one of the funniest things is uh, I'm sure you saw um, the, I think it was the athletic director who said that somebody asked him how they came up with all this money for Deion Sanders contract. And his answer was they don't have it yet, but they know they will with all the money he's going to rake in. Yeah. And, and I kind of love that. If I were a Colorado football fan, I would say, what, what do we have to lose right now? We, we got to go for it. Um, at least this puts our name on the map for guys who would never even think about coming to Colorado. So yeah, they had like insane merch sales just in the last 10 days. Yeah. So, Hey, I guess I'm proof. Now I'm, I don't know the last time I watched a Colorado football game, but I'm, I'm about to actually I do Uh Cordell Stewart, depending on how old our listeners are, you might not know that name. He played, he, before he played for the Steelers, he went to uh he was a buff. So 
Never watched any uh, Chidobe Wuzier. I have not. He's in the NFL now, but he had a great run in college. Love it. Speaking of great runs in college, we would be remiss to not talk about uh, the Heisman Trophy, which was wrapped up by Caleb Williams, quarterback for USC. Sophomore, had an amazing season. Not a surprise going into the weekend, was, was the front runner. Second, Max Duggan, the quarterback out of Texas Christian. Third <clears throat> was C.J. Stroud, uh, Ohio State. And fourth was uh, Stetson Bennett. Obviously, of those four, Stetson Bennett kind of being uh, the most controversial name. Um, Pat, what did you think about this? I think biggest thing for me here was, you know, I still think a big part of the conversation is who wasn't there. I think Hendon Hooker and Blake Corum both had good arguments to be there. Um, at the end of the day, I think Caleb Williams probably was the right choice, maybe, question mark. But another big thing is I think it shows that a lot of these votes were probably still placed before conference championship weekend. And you saw that with, you know, the results didn't really play a big role. I get that Caleb was all hobbled. I get that Max Duggan lost, but I thought Max Duggan's performance was a lot better. Um, and I think you would have seen the voting there be a little closer had more people put in their votes after every single game was played. Yeah. Now, I will say this, and this is really getting into the college football nerdy weeds. Um I've seen a lot of people make comments about how it was a runaway for the Heisman this year. Oh, Caleb Williams is a runaway. It was a blowout. That's a falsehood. And we have numbers to back that up. So you can always go online and look at the um, final results of the Heisman Trophy. And they're, they're counted in points. I believe each Heisman voter only gets to vote first through third. So they don't get to choose fourth, fifth, sixth. That's just based on how the points um, trickle down. First place vote gets you three. Second place votes gets you two. A third place vote gets you one. So this year, Caleb Williams finished with 2,031 points. Max Duggan, 1,420 points. And then there's a big drop off down to CJ Stroud, who had 539. And Stetson Bennett had 349. Hendon Hooker, 226. And everyone below that had less than 200. So is, is that a big win? Well, it's hard to know if you, have, if you don't follow this kind of stuff. But when you're, you're nerdy, then you do. So this year, Caleb Williams won by 611 votes. Last year, Bryce Young over doubled that and won by over 1,300 votes. Yeah, this was not a runaway in terms of points or in terms of the way this played out throughout the season. I mean, we watched as the odds for the Heisman just massively fluctuated from Hendon Hooker to Blake Corum to CJ Stroud to Caleb Williams in the end, Max Duggan making a run, Drake May there for a while. Like this was never a sure thing until basically the last week of the regular season. Um, so no, yeah, this was not a runaway Heisman season. A blowout would have been in 2019 when Joe Burrow won the Heisman with over 2,600 points and a margin of victory greater than 1,800 points. 
They basically should have only sent him to New York that year because no one else had a chance. <laughs> um, now, the closest, I thought this was also somewhat interesting, the most similar Heisman result in the last, you know, 10, 15 years for, you know, those who are about our age and been watching for a while was actually Lamar Jackson, who had 2100, who had a little over 2,100 votes and won by about 620 votes. So almost the exact same points and margin of victory as Caleb Williams. However, if memory serves me, I remember Lamar Jackson's season being way more special than Caleb Williams this year. Definitely agree. I don't think this was a very strong Heisman field. Yeah, I I would agree with that overall. And like you said, it was just how often the award changed hands. Yeah, and basically no one closed the regular season strongly. Um, Blake Corum injured, Hedden and Hooker injured. Um, you saw Max Duggan hobbled um, and lost his conference championship. You saw Caleb Williams hobbled, lost his conference championship. You saw C.J. Stroud destroyed last week of the regular season against Michigan. Um, so basically no one performed on the stretch. Stetson somehow got into the field, but was never a real contender throughout the regular season. So just a very weak field overall in my mind. Yep. So we can talk about some of the other awards in college football. Um, some of the other big ones that went out, uh, Caleb Williams also won the Maxwell and Walter camp players of the year. Um, the Davy O'Brien, which goes to the best quarterback, went to Max Duggan. You know, it's always a little funny how they parse the different awards out. Um, the Doak Walker, which goes to the best running back, um, went to Bijan Robinson. Um, you know, definitely a deserving player, but I think a pretty close call there with Blake Corum. Um, any thoughts on some of those bigger awards? And then we can go through a few more. I'm always a sucker for the underdog. I, I have to admit, I like when, you know, the, the I don't want to say little guy, but I guess that's um, kind of the, the term people use. I'm glad Max Duggan got recognized. I thought he had a special season. I thought just like Caleb Williams, TCU would not be here without Max Duggan. And I, I think that he, I think he would have won it if they won the Big 12 championship. That lat that drive was just people talk about that Heisman moment. That was the Heisman moment. I mean, he's just gassed. He's doing everything he can to win. And it's I'm also probably a little more old school than other people in the sense that he's just tough. I like him. He's just he's got that dog in him, dude. He's not he's not the fastest, he's not the strongest, but you know, game on the line. I'll take Max Duggan every time. There's no quit in that guy. He's tougher than nails. Um, so I was glad he got recognized. I think for the Doak Walker, um, unfortunately, injuries do play a role in these awards. We can argue about whether they should or they shouldn't. Um, that obviously speaks to Hendon Hooker's Heisman chances as well. I don't necessarily have a problem with Bijan Robinson getting it. I think him and Blake Corm were kind of 1A, 1B in the backfield this year. Blake Corm probably wins it if he doesn't get hurt. Um, I don't like the argument that because Donovan Edwards has been so good that that somehow diminishes what Blake Corm did because of you know it, it was his offensive line. 
Okay. No running backs can have a good year behind a bad offensive line. So it's just a that's just a mute point. I do want to say for the Blitnikoff, I thought Jalen Hyatt had a great year. Um I thought Marvin Harrison had a pretty good case. Um from Ohio State. I saw some people were upset with that. Both great wide receivers. Yeah, I understand that Hyatt had had more touchdowns. Um but it I have to admit I don't I have no data point to be able to back this up, but Marvin Harrison has he has that Randy Moss factor to me where every time I see them throw it deep to him, I think he's gonna catch it. And no one else has that. No one else in college football right now has that for me where I'm like, oh God, they just threw it to Marvin Harrison Jr. He's go- it's got it's gonna be a touchdown. So I would have probably leaned towards him just because he has that that special, you know, that gut reaction for me. I know that every time I think he's going to – he makes phenomenal catches. Wrapping up on the offensive side of the ball, we had Brock Bowers win tight end. Um, Olu Oluwatimi from Michigan uh, center won both interior lineman of the year and uh, the Remington for the center of the year. Um, I think that's his second straight Remington. Yeah, dude is out of control right now. Uh, no, he didn't win the Remington in 2021. No? No. Um, but he was thought to be the best center. Gotcha. My apologies on that. Um, And then, yeah, I think that's about it on the offensive side of the ball. Defensive side, Will Anderson just absolutely cleaned up, man. He won like three or four awards. Yeah, and what's crazy is Will Anderson, I think, objectively had a worse year than last year. Yeah, and I mean, last year he was right there in the heart of the Heisman conversation. Um, You know, whether he was close to a top finisher or not, he was right there in the heart of, like, should it be him or Aiden Hutchinson that was there um, as a finalist? Sad that our guy Moody didn't didn't take home the uh, Lou Garza. Second, I believe. Yeah. Would have been his second in a row. Dude is just an absolute legend. I wonder if part of why he didn't win was because he did it. He did win last year, but man, he's just a monster. Um, I hope we can give him a national championship instead. That would be my gift to Jake Moody. Yeah, and I'm sure he would um, gladly accept that. Coach of the year went to Sonny Dykes. Um, Seems very deserved. We're not supposed to do just about anything this season. And here they are in the college football playoff with a chance at winning the whole damn thing. Yeah, completely agree. I think that this award also kind of took care of itself. Other people I would have put in that conversation um, would have been early in the year. Lance Leipold for Kansas when they were absolutely rolling, like ranked in the teens. I think his name would have been right at the top as well. Um, before Illinois had the little skid, Brett Bielma doing a great job with the Illini as well. And, you know, both those teams just kind of had a little rough stretch at the end of the season, which really put them out of, out of contention for it. 
What about Mel Tucker? Do you think he uh, had a case? Do you think he was jobbed? I'm not going to give in to your antagonistic ways of poking the Spartans on this podcast, Patrick. Um, but um, I think that the Big Ten had a lot of great coaches this year. I think, you know, I, I think that Harbaugh did a great job. I think that clearly Sonny Dykes did more with less, but he he definitely had a good um, a good job this yeah, year. Yeah, I as mean, well. no one could say Harbaugh didn't deserve to be a candidate, but he, yeah, he didn't do as much with as little yeah. as Sonny Dykes did this year. Um, he kind of brought them out of nowhere. Harbaugh established them last year, but still an amazing coaching job by Harbaugh. Uh, just other people to mention, Lincoln Riley. I'll get. I'll give some credit there. But like I said, I think the conversation has to start changing around Lincoln Riley. Um, my If I were a USC fan, here would be my singular biggest concern. I am always concerned about coaches who, who seem to be unable to adapt. We have seen Lincoln Riley lose with the same kind of team, the same kind of ways, Basically, every time he's been head coach, he's had three Heisman Trophy winners and probably three number one overall picks with no championship to show for it. At some point, you have to say, I mean, what's he going to what's the plan? What are you going to do? You're eventually going to run out of these guys. You're not going to keep reloading on them every single time. Caleb Williams is probably the best out of the bunch. So if he doesn't do it next year and I'm trying to figure out what I would look at that team and say, oh yeah, they're going to have a defense next year. Nothing right now. So I think that the narrative around him, he did a great job this year. I forget they won. I forget how many games they won last year, but they, you know, had like a six or seven win differential increase. That That's a great job. But if, if we're going to talk about him with the big boys, then we need to have the same standard as we do with all the other guys. And right now, there has to become a new conversation around Lincoln Riley that he doesn't win the big one. Completely agree. And it'll be fun to see what he does in some big games in the Big Ten, if he's still around. Well, it'll, it will either be very fun or very painful, depending on what, what side you're rooting for. So um, that leaves me with maybe one final quick coach discussion. Thoughts on Ryan Day's situation at Ohio State as it sits now, and do you think his job entirely hinges on a matchup in Ann Arbor in November next year? If he loses that game again, is he staying around? What do you think? I think he has a couple bigger games coming up. I mean, we have to see they're in the they're in the playoff this year. I we have to see what happens. I mean, I I, I completely agree that I, they have way bigger things in front of them this postseason in the playoffs this year and can still win the whole damn thing. Um, but I think people have asked the question, and I do think it's kind of interesting. I mean, that does feel like one big game. It does. Um, I ha- I heard someone. I try to give credit to other, you know, podcasts and college football shows or personalities when I hear them, but I can't remember who said this, but Ryan Day's 
last, what is it, three or four biggest games have all been multiple touchdown blowout defeats. I think that is the concerning part. It does seem to me right now that he, and I don't want to say he's getting a pass if he loses to Georgia, but I think people expect him to lose to Georgia. And you're in a different, you're in a whole different position when you're expected to lose versus when you're expected to win. I don't think people are going to be calling for his job anymore if they lose to Georgia. Now, if they lose by 40, maybe. But I think losing to Georgia, okay. Now, if they beat Georgia, that's the bigger difference here, I think. I think I think they're playing with house money at this point. Everyone thinks you're going to lose if you win. If they win, they're probably favored in the national title, whether it's against Michigan or TCU. It'll be, it would be close against Michigan. They would definitely be favored against TCU. So he's one, you know, schemed game away from everything coming back. Yeah, um, I think it's crazy. I think he's one win away from being safe for like a few years. And he's two losses away from, I don't know, dude. I think he might be gone. If he, be, if he loses to Georgia and loses next year to Michigan again, I think that might be it. So I think he could be one win away from like a cool throne. And yeah, a couple couple losses away from a, a real real hot seat. I'd probably I'd probably agree with that. Um, I think a large portion of that depends on who's available. First name we're obviously going to talk about is Urban Meyer. I'm not. I don't claim to be plugged into Ohio State enough to really know. If that's even a possibility with everything that's happened in Columbus or not, but you heard the fans chanting, we want urban. He ain't um, coming back. I'd be shocked. He's I, nothing shocks me with him anymore. Um, I wonder about Brian Hartline. That would be, I think if they, if there were another internal, um, hire, it would probably be him. I mean, he he was an Ohio State player. Look at the wide receiver room. He has to have the single best unit room in the country over the last five years. Is Brian Hartline and how he recruits and how he develops the wide receivers. I mean, there's there's no better product right now than an Ohio State wide receiver. Or they look for an external candidate um, who I don't even I, – I genuinely don't even know who – would be of that caliber at this point. So I think that is, I agree with you that if he loses, if he loses to Georgia and he loses to Michigan, he could be gone. It's possible. Yeah. Um, On that note with Brian Hartline, Brian Hartline, I I think is still available as of right now, but I know he was heavily looked at in the university of Cincinnati head coach search. I think they hired somebody else. Scott Satterfield, Scott Satterfield left Illinois. I mean, left uh, Louisville, excuse me. He left Louisville. He took Cincinnati and then Jeff Brom went from Purdue back to Louisville where he, he uh, played. Yeah. But, um, I would be not surprised if Brian Hartline already has a job somewhere by the time that an Ohio State vacancy was open. 
Yeah. So, but does, I don't know the inner workings. I'm just not, I'm not keyed, you know, keyed into that community enough. Um, are, is Brian Hartline, does he see the writing on the wall and say, I want the job? I, I have no idea. Um, but Day is definitely feeling the, the heat for sure. I also just wanted to point out, I think I mentioned this to you recently, just another kind of little, little fun trivia fact. Um, I always find these little coaching trees fun and how people think about football. And maybe you can learn something from where one of these coaches, uh, their kind of lineage and, uh, Ryan day played quarterback at New Hampshire. His head coach was chip Kelly. So some parallels there and, you know, kind of a, a chip Kelly offense somewhat and overall how, how they run a team and how day does. So, um, you know, to be determined, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, obviously there's a ton more in college football to talk about. There's a lot going on in the transfer portal. There's a ton of great bowl games coming up. We've got the college football playoffs, We've got our alma mater right there locked up with a chance to play um, TCU with a chance at an opportunity to play for a national title. A lot of fun stuff to dive into. We will be certainly back with another episode here in the next couple of weeks to dive into all of that fun stuff. Um, but Kevin, any last thoughts before we get out of here? No, I think we hit on all the major stuff and just excited to next show, not only preview the bowl games, but hopefully we have a little more clarity on everything going on with the transfer portal. Should be really fun. Um, until next time, thanks for tuning in to First and in Inches, brought to you by Milwaukee Tool, nothing but heavy duty. We'll see you in a little bit. Cheers. Cheers.